You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. at the Enoch Pratt Free Library, and welcome to Writers Live. Thank you for joining us on this unseasonably humid evening. Uh, Tonight, we are welcoming the authors of Rising Tide, Climate Refugees in the 21st Century. And that's Denise Robbins and Jack Wennerstein. Wennerstein. Stan. Wennerstein. I apologize. Um, Rising Tide... Uh, sounds an urgent wake-up call to the growing crisis of climate refugees and offers an essential continent-by-continent look at these dangers, detailing a number of solutions, which I hope we hear a few today, and then you can read about more when you pick up the book from the Ivy Bookshop in the hallway. Uh, The argument is that no nation can tackle this universal problem alone. The crisis of climate refugees requires global concentrated solutions beyond the strategic, fiscal, and legal capability of a single country or agency. And after the past few months of hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, etc., we really can't ignore this global crisis. Uh, So more about the authors. Jack Wennerston is an environmental affairs writer and author of Global Thirst, Water and Society in the 21st Century. He's also the Maryland Humanities Commission, uh, the Maryland Humanities Commission recently selected him as a Maryland Millennial Scholar. So congratulations. Um, And Denise Robbins is a writer and communications expert on climate change issues in Washington, D.C. A graduate of Cornell University, she regularly publishes articles dealing with all aspects of global and national environmental change with a focus on regional politics. So please give a warm welcome to Jack and Denise. I want to thank you, Hardy Souls, for coming out tonight. Um, one never knows what one is going to encounter when one is roaming around the country and doing book talks. And we like the Hardy Souls, the ones who brave the elements. Um, plus, uh, <clears throat> the good news is that uh, the Pratt Library is high enough so that the rising tides aren't lapping up against its shore. But um, the bad news is, is that we need to think critically about what is happening in terms of our immediate present and our not-so-distant future. Our book, Rising Tides, Climate Refugees in the 21st Century, grew out of a fundamental question. And that question is, what is the future that we want, and what is the future that we want to avoid? Largely because, throughout the planet, people are on the move. We are now beginning to think in terms of what demographers call migration states. Millions of people on the move. Some coming from countries where they are oppressed by climate and politics. Some where they are oppressed by climate. Some where they are oppressed by rising seas so that their islands will soon disappear. And it was these issues that prompted Denise and, and I to write this book. Over the past century, we've seen dramatic changes taking place in the Earth's climate. And in the last few years, in the 136-year climate record of NOAA, 16 of the warmest years in climate history have occurred since 2000. That's a very warm period that we're moving into. Um, And biologists are saying that we're now reaching the end of the biological period, and we're now coming into the Anthropocene age, where humans, rather than natural processes, are going to dictate what is happening to our climate. A few years back, Bill McKibben wrote an interesting book called The End of Nature, And I always get a plug-in for at least one book in my talks. In this book, McKibben said that we now have the power not to adapt to nature, 
but to indeed to control the very natural processes which unfold. Today, there are nearly 20 million refugees roaming the planet, and of these, millions are being forced out of their respective countries and homelands because of climate change. Denise will speak to specific areas of the world that are being affected by climate change and producing large refugee populations. But bear in mind that when we talk about people being forced out of their countries, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Asia or Latin America, or more recently in Houston, we have to talk about the fact that most of these climate refugees, a good 53% of these refugees are going to be children. And what kind of world are these people entering into? Global warming is increasing an already dire situation because the situation was bad enough in many areas of the world because of unequal distribution of income, because of disease. Diseases that we don't think exist anymore exist in many countries today. We don't see much tuberculosis, we don't see much diphtheria, we don't see much uh, uh, liver fluke disease, you know, uh, various stenosis diseases, and yet <coughs> these people on the move will bring with them their culture, their language, their background, their health, and ultimately their diseases. Now, <coughs> how do we deal with refugee populations? Refugee populations aren't new. We've been dealing with refugees since the days of ancient Rome, when the barbarian hordes were on the move. More recently, refugees became a major issue at the end of World War I, and the League of Nations um, was chartered. And one of the things that the League of Nations did was it set up a system, a humanitarian system, for the placement of refugees. And it issued identity cards intended to regularize the process population movements, and things of that sort. World War II, of course, with the Holocaust and the whole diaspora of the Eastern European populations, uh, added to the whole notion of refugee. More recently, hundreds of thousands of refugees came to the United States during the Vietnam conflict, as you may have seen during the Burns episode on the Vietnam War. So refugees are not something new. What is new, however, is the term climate refugees. If you check the laws of the United Nations High Commission on Refugees, you will find that they give a specific definition to the term refugee. A refugee is someone that is fleeing persecution. A refugee is someone who fears for his life, fears incarceration, fears that he will be discriminated against because of his religion or the color of his skin. There's nothing in the United Nations High Command for Refugee definition for climate refugees. And climate refugees are going to be the major refugee surge of the mid to late 21st century. You may have noticed that the United States government recently committed itself to admitting 45,000 refugees. 45,000 out of 20-odd million, uh, not much. And these people will be knocking on our doors for sanctuary, for support, for help. And how will we react to these refugees? How will we treat them? Will we welcome them? Or will we develop xenophobic proposals to keep them out? Will we create our countries into armed lifeboats to make sure that uh, people don't break into the country. Uh, we haven't thought much about people trying to break out of the country, but that may happen soon. <laughs> Proud you. Um, the thing that I want you to realize is these refugees are the future, and there is no gainsaying the future as it begins to unfold. We have recently seen one million Syrian refugees enter Germany. Try to imagine, just for a moment, the impact of one million refugees on a country that is mildly tolerant, despite its 
sorted the past, affluent, and in need of workers. And indeed, the ultimate rationale between, behind Angela Merkel's decision to admit such large numbers stemmed from the fact that everybody in Germany was getting old. It was about to enter a demographic crisis. And where was the next future labor pool going to come from? It certainly wasn't going to come from native Germans. It had to come from elsewhere. Just as we in the United States imported thousands of people, millions of people ultimately, to come into this country to develop our railroads, to mine our coal, to exploit our coal fields and our oil wells, so too Germany needed workers. But it's brought about a tremendous backlash. The xenophobic fears, appeals to racial nationalism, and things of this sort, all have to be confronted as we look to the future and deal with the subject of climate refugees. Also, climate refugees have a great deal of difficulty getting a hearing in terms of where they need to go, what they should be doing, who will help them, and things of that sort. So as the talk unfolds, Denise and I will make special reference to some rather unique situation. At the same time that all of this is happening, we are now entering a period where whole segments of our population are into fierce denial as to the very existence of climate change. And in turn, um, we find ourselves waylaid by events. What do I mean by waylaid by events? It's very difficult to surmount the high level of political noise in this country and elsewhere in the Western developed world to deal with the subject, the heartrending subject of climate refugees. People think that it's not going to happen to them. That climate change is going to happen to other people, it's not going to happen to them. But witness the recent developments in Houston, Miami, Puerto Rico, and you can see what is going to happen in the future if we don't come to terms with the reality that we are facing. I began this little intro with the question, what is the future we want, and what is the future we want to avoid? And Denise now is going to talk about some of the major issues that confront us as we move on forward into the 21st century. Denise? Thanks, Jack. Um, thanks to you all, thank you all for coming today. Um, I have been interested and involved in the global warming advocacy for a really long time, but I have to say there are two key events in my college years that sort of shaped this experience, and I'm here today. The first of which was a movie screening that I helped put on called, aptly named, Climate Refugees, um, with director Michael Nash that really was really eye-opening and it was an amazing experience to bring that issue to campus and an idea that none of us had ever really heard of before and really showcasing the humanity of the climate change crisis. And so that's the first thing. And then the second thing was a couple, thing, a couple months after that when I had the opportunity to go to the United Nations Climate Change Conference down in Cancun, Mexico where in, uh, delegates from nations across the world would sit in rooms and argue for hours over the word would or should, and just the complete contrast between those two experiences, one having such humanity and one having a very clear lack of humanity was uh, uh, really shaping for me, and I carried that with me for many years until I met Jack and he asked if I wanted to help write half this book about climate change refugees and I had to say yes, you know, this uh, human side of climate change has been everything that makes this issue important to me. Um, so I jumped at the opportunity and wanting to make the word climate change synonymous with human tragedy, which isn't a very fun goal to work towards, but you know the seriousness of the issue is really important to hammer home, uh, because otherwise it's just so easy to think about climate change, global warming, and dismiss it as something like what we're seeing 
today in Baltimore, for instance, we're seeing 75 degree weather and like 80 degree weather for the past week, which it's a little warm, it's a little balmy, but it's been pretty nice to be outside. But And a couple of years ago, you know, presidential candidates were able to say, oh, climate change will just be a sunburn. You're worried about a sunburn? And, but it's obviously not about that. It's not just about warm weather. It's about all of these intense extreme weather events that go along with it, as we've seen in just the past couple of weeks down in Puerto Rico, Houston, Florida, on our own shores. Um, so, the interesting thing about writing this book is that it happened while the refugee crisis was totally exploding in Europe, largely due to Syria, the Syria civil war. Um, and in that time period, we saw the most refugees as well as ever seen since World War II. And while a large portion of that has nothing to do with climate change. There were some scientific reports coming out at the time making that connection between refugees from that crisis to climate change. And the reasoning behind that, to just take a step back for a quick second, is uh, in Syria, they faced a three-year super drought that was the worst they'd ever seen in modern history. This drought caused massive crop failures, uh, livestock, deaths, farmers just lost their way of living, and 1.5 million people moved from the rural areas into the urban centers of Syria. So there, there was this massive influx of a population of people of different ethnic backgrounds uh, clashing with each other for the first time in unheard of numbers, putting huge strains on the resources on the infrastructures of the cities that they were, they were moving to, and it really exacerbated a lot of the problems that they already had going on. Um, led to a lot of unrest. Of course, you know, then President uh, Bashar al-Assad cracked down and led to the civil war, but the, the, the links between climate change and that refugee crisis are actually something that people started talking about at the time. Uh, scientific papers coming out. John Kerry making that connection, Bernie Sanders. And, that, and it seems so crazy to a lot of people who had never heard of the term climate refugees or who were honestly very concerned about the refugee crisis but didn't want people to necessarily uh, water it down with something else or anything like that. But um, it was a very interesting time to be working on this. And very easy to, for right-wing media, at the time I was working at Media Matters, uh, uh, doing a lot of media fact-checking. Easily laughing off the idea of climate refugees, but also my generally progressive friends were confused about it too. Um, so this is a really good opportunity for me to really dive into those links and see all the different connections that exist between climate change and mass migration movements across the world in the past couple of decades and what people are expecting in the future. And the the general trend of rural to urban is a huge one. Um, not just because of climate change, but the climate stressors on the farming way of life is, has a big hand in that. So we have these interesting, complicated, sort of multi-step connections between climate change and refugees as we've seen in Syria, but in a lot of other places we have issues where it's, the connection is much more direct and the main version of that is sea level rise. Uh, global warming is causing sea level rise, and there are some countries, there are some states that are just feet above sea level rise and are predicted to be completely underwater within decades, within a century. Um, they're already moving their populations out into different places in their country or even to different countries. In the Pacific Islands, we have people moving into New Zealand and things like that. Um, that's also happening in the United States. And largely indigenous communities, uh, interestingly enough, but in Alaska and in Louisiana, we have Alaskan communities that have been living on the peninsula for thousands of years, and their land is gonna be underwater. And Louisiana indigenous communities as well, living in the Gulf region where they're losing about a football field of land 
per, I'm going to get the number wrong, but it's like per day or per minute or something really insane like that. Um, and they're working with government assistance to be relocated. We have Americans being relocated because they are going to lose their lands to civil rights. Um, and, you know, even this direct connection still sometimes is hard for people in our country to accept. Uh, as we can see in a small town in Virginia called Tangier, which is predicted to be underwater in 50 years. And the mayor a few months ago called President Trump and said, Trump, what, what can I do? I'm, uh, scientists are telling me that my island's going to be underwater. Um, and Trump basically just said, don't worry about it. It's not, it's not climate change. <laughs> Ignore the scientists. And uh, that's just the way things are in places like that. So there's a lot of work to be done to you know, really hammer this issue home. And somewhere we're also going to start seeing that playing out, I think, is in Puerto Rico, where their island is totally devastated. And we have this question of, are we going to pretend that things are going to be the way they always have been, or are we going to try to rebuild it, looking at future potential hurricane events, trying to, knowing that this is a sort of a new reality that they're going to have to face all the time, and how are they going to actually prepare for that. So this book talks about things like that, issues, people that are moving, the way that climate change is affecting migration on every single continent, um, you know, there's landslides in Peru and South Africa, there's drought in Africa, there's wildfires in Russia that led to massive wheat failures. And it's a lot of information, but it basically is meant to be more sort of a resource and a tool to back up a very simple thesis that climate change is going to force people to move, and we need to do something about that. Um, because climate change refugees is such a hard topic to communicate to people who have never heard about. So that's what we're sort of intending with this full comprehensive look at the issue, is to be able to have this book in your back pocket basically if someone's like, oh, I, I don't think that's really, that climate change is actually gonna force people to move. And they'd be like, well, you know, in, in Australia there's this, and in Europe there's this, and, um, Da, 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 da. So it's a it's a really it is a, not the happiest book. It is a pretty dark message, but you know it's not meant to be very depressing. It's meant to be used more as a sort of a tool and a more a way of reframing the issue of not just being about climate, the environment, the air, the water. It's about humans. It's about compassion. So when you're acting on climate change, you're really acting for the sake of others and for humanity. And so the other point I just would like you know to add is that the science around all of this is constantly evolving and it's constantly predicting things that we would never have expected. Like I did not, we did not expect to see. Puerto Rico devastated by a hurricane when we were writing this book and already seeing like, American uh, uh, relocation. They are going to keep evacuating people from that state while it's under such disrepair and they're going to move to mainland and we don't want everyone to necessarily leave Puerto Rico. We want, we want them to live in their communities and we want to rebuild their homes, um, but we still, we need to prepare for the unexpected, basically. Um, so that's, again, this point of the book being more of a, a, a way to look forward on how do we actually act and what do we do to uh, take care for the future. <clears throat> the next hit upon one thing that I want to <clears throat> expand upon, and that is 
that whenever we start thinking about absorbing flows of refugees, whether they are political or climate refugees, there are two things we have to encounter. One is the xenophobia, the fear of the other, that is characteristic of most normal societies. It's not just characteristic of the Germans or the French or the English or the Americans. It's a standard thing, fear of strangeness. The other is um, we sometimes exert ourselves in behalf of a cause or helping people, but sooner or later something called compassion fatigue sets in. When people say, if I see one more story about Puerto Rico, if I see one more story about starving <clears throat> cattle ranchers in the Sudan who are being overwhelmed by the droughts that take place in the Sahel, if I hear one more story about people on Tangier Island in the Chesapeake Bay worrying about whether or not they're going to drown on their island and have to be evacuated or be evacuated, uh, I can't stand it anymore. So click off goes the TV, click off goes the brain. And so <clears throat> when we talk about a subject as diverse as this, we should bear in mind that we've always had climate refugees. We've had Okies coming out of the Dust Bowl of the 1930s. We've had people coming out of the drowned cities of New Orleans and Houston. We've had people coming out of the Holocaust of Europe seeking refuge. We've had people coming out of Africa for the longest time. But what was different between then and now is going to be the difference of magnitude. We're not talking about just four or five, six million. We're talking about anywhere from 20 to 60 million people on the move by the end of the century. How will we sustain these people? How will we bring them into our political economy? When essentially everywhere we look, even in the United Nations, there's very little planning going on, very little discussion of how these things need to be regularized and standardized. When I was doing some research, I found that the League of Nations in 1920, when it started dealing with its refugee populations that were produced by war, they were farther ahead in terms of issuing international passports, regulating uh, flows of refugees, finding out where people were born, what language they spoke, what their religion was, what their education was. They were far ahead of anything we have had since then. Uh, we're not even beginning to approach what they were doing at the end of World War I. And on top of all that is something that I call black swan events. And I'll talk about briefly about black swan events and we'll turn it over to um, you folks for questions. Uh, what is a black swan event? We all know what a black swan is, a beautiful bird, a creature of nature. But black swan events is a scientific term to denote the fact that changes in climate can no longer be anticipated and regularly charted. We talk about a 100-year storm, a 300-year storm, a 500-year storm, we no longer can anticipate any regularity in nature. Uh, it's going to come upon us like a thief in the night. This is what black swan events are. No one thought that this would happen. No one thought that this disaster would take place. No one anticipated this. Because in the modern age, these black swan events are in many cases replacing the regularity, the cyclical nature of the environment, and it's something that we haven't really thought about, and it's catching us uh, unawares. Let me just read you a quote about Camille Mora, who's a, a, a geobiologist. And here's what he has to say. And, I'm quoting from her book. 
University of Hawaii biogeographer, bio, University of Hawaii biogeographer Camilo Mora and colleagues have recently published a disturbing analysis of what lies in the global future. They call it the era of climate departure, a point at which the Earth's climate begins to cease resembling that which has come before and moves into a new state, one where heat records are routinely shattered and what was once considered extreme will become the norm. So much for that. And as Diane indicated, this is not a book that's going to put you into a happy, clappy ecstasy. But it's a book that should make you think and ask yourself the question that we started with. What kind of future do we want? What kind of future do we want to avoid? Now, turn it over to questions. And since we are podcasting, I can run the mic back and forth. So, uh, the U.S. military that has does long-range forecasts of um, <clears throat> threats to national security or world security, yes. and they've identified climate change as as a long-term major one which is consistent with what you're saying. Do you, are their findings or their projections consistent with what you're seeing? Is the scale similar? Do you, would you like to ex expound on, on what the uh, uh, Pentagon is saying about uh, climate, ch climate change impacts in, in the world? Stability. You're right. The military has done numerous studies on climate change as a security threat in the future. And as we are speaking tonight, the military remains the only sector of government that's getting it. That's getting it. They know what's in store. I mean, Navy planners, and our, and our son um, is an officer in the United States Navy, Navy planners are now worrying about Norfolk. I mean, that's where the Atlantic Fleet is headquartered. And if you start having rising tides and all kinds of new weather events, what is that going to happen to the security of the Atlantic Fleet? That's just one example. Uh, and how will climate change add to the destabilization of populations? Something that the Marines and the Army want to know a lot about. And also, as refugees begin traversing oceans and rivers and lakes, the Coast Guard is extremely concerned about what its role will have to be as we move forward into this new uncertain century of what I call black swan events. I hope I've answered your question. Just to add to that, it is interesting to see that the military is one of the agency that I think has done the most research and has installed the most renewable energy uh, because they know that it's more economic, especially for ships in the middle of the ocean, to rely on their own energy source. And they are very much in the front of the game in terms of knowing the risks of climate change and starting to work with what they can to move to renewable energy resources. So. Uh, you, you do hope that the rest of the administrations will, will see that and take note. Um, and yeah, in Norfolk especially, you see sea level rise really hitting home there. So Virginia legislators that, uh, that are in Virginia Beach, I think Rhonda Villanueva is the, the legislator that has introduced a, a bill uh, for climate policy in Virginia, the one Republican in the state of Virginia that is behind climate policies because they, he really sees climate change coming to his home and wanting to act on that. So uh, I do. I think that when it comes to naval bases, when it comes to Virginia Beach, when it comes to Puerto Rico, it's unfortunate that you need events uh, that harm your home to wake people up 
that something is happening, we need to do something about it, but I do think that's a sort of necessary evil that uh, actually seeing the effects of something is what gets people to do something about it. How far ahead do you look? And uh, for, forgetting black swan events for the moment, just talk about number of feet of sea level rise. Do you look ahead to a world where it's even just two feet, which could be well before the end of the century, and what this means for all sorts of human habitation on, on the coastlines all over the world? And, and you say you have solutions uh, do you have any solutions for two, two feet of sea level rise? Uh, we do take, in this book, more of a look at the next few decades, because when you get to the 100-year span, it gets a lot more uncertain. But it does definitely run from two feet to the end of the century to even 10 feet with some of the worst projections. And I think we can't really discount the worst projections at this point. But um, in terms of what people are doing about it with sea level rise in a lot of countries that literally means moving to a different country. Um, but when it comes to our naval bases in Virginia Beach perhaps, or a lot of Scandinavian countries, it's more about actually putting up seawall barriers, uh, building, building up the barriers to run sea level rise. Um, in certain places like Florida, that's not really a solution because the ground is porous and the water just comes in from underneath anyways. Uh, so it's really a, something that you have to look at place by place on an individual basis. But um, knowing what the worst possible scenario is, is key to taking that first step. I, I think it's perfectly reasonable to look at some of the climate assessments in terms of the rising seas to say five centuries and a half a meter. I think that's perfectly plausible, um, perhaps even more. Um, the point I, I, that intrigues me is let's assume, for argument's sake, that the waters will be rising. Let's not in terms of, try and think in terms of uh, quantifying that exact amount. But thinking in terms of storm surges, extreme weather events, and things of that sort, um, there are three ways that you can deal with rising tides throughout the planet. One is you can fortify. That is, you can build dikes. Um, we have a beautiful dike in Washington, D.C. at 17th Street, uh, down by where the old canal house was. And they built a wall, and then it goes, a highway used by commuters goes right through the wall, so they have to keep that open. But they have a portable plug that when the Potomac begins to rise and threatens to flood them all, they bring the plug back from the warehouse, stick the plug in. I just hope that the next time the, the guys get the plug there on time. Um, the other thing is, you know, you can build huge dikes like the one that was contemplated after um, the flood events in New York City, where New York officials brought in the Dutch uh, engineers, and they thought about the idea of building a dike from Sandy Hook, New Jersey, to um, Manhattan. Um, it's quite a dike. Um, so there's fortification. Uh, there's also resilience. Resilience is an idea that you have to come to terms with the water. Some places you let the water in, some places you keep the water out, but you're not going to keep all the water out all the time. It's going to come in. And the Dutch government has already told its people that we're going to now let some of the water in. And we're going to move farmers and villages to higher ground. Just as in the United States, some uh, communities that were on the Mississippi River have been moved to higher bluffs so that they won't be constantly flooded out. How many times do these villages and towns want to be flooded out? So there's fortification, there's resilience, and the, the final one is long-term planning. You know, combining both fortification and resilience to come up with some ideas 
of how these rising waters can be um, withstood. I wrote a book a while back called uh, Global Thirst, and in Global Thirst I talked about rising tides briefly, and there was a section in there that I, that I put about the Dutch because they now have developed a very, very profitable floating house industry. These are houses, not like little barges like you see maybe in the harbor down here or in Washington, D.C. These are regular houses, two-story townhouses that float, that can be moved around and attached and hooked up with electricity and sewage and everything else like that. The only problem is you have to be careful where you put your furniture. And one lady bought one of these houses and tried to install her grand piano, so the whole thing sort of tilted a little bit. So you have to be careful. So resilience and fortification and some kind of compromise of the two um, is the way to go. Any more questions? Mine is not a question. Mine is a fact. In Baltimore City, uh, a couple or so more years ago, within the 2000s, uh, downtown Baltimore had a flood. And I had gone down there uh, and do some, did some food, I mean food shopping on a Thursday. And by Friday, it was a flood where you could getting canoes or boats and rubber down there. That happened. I don't know the exact year, maybe some people here remember that flood, but it occurred and I'm so happy that I live on higher ground. <laughs> and um, uh, what both of you are saying, uh, I had heard from another person that uh, Many of us here in the United States better be planning to move, even though you don't want to move. Uh, but one day you have to, and you're still living here. That's all I have to say. Well, we have had some. We have had very serious floods in recently, uh, even in Washington, D.C., in 2011. We had a, a nine-foot um, tidal surge that engulfed uh, the Georgetown waterfront, um, put nine feet of water down in the shops and residences of the people who lived in a very swanky area of Georgetown called Washington Harbor. They were not abused, especially since they paid dues to have floodgates protect them from these tidal surges. And someone forgot to raise the floodgates when the information was first brought to them. Could have saved the whole situation and uh, spare them the great economic losses that they had. Well, I want to thank you both for your voice in this uh, timely topic. And I wish there were more voices speaking up. It's hard to talk about climate change refugees when it's hard to have a conversation about climate change. And uh, I'm not sure how to recruit those other voices to, to speak up. Perhaps, as previously referred, the military can have a voice in it. It just doesn't seem like there's a political will now or a political priority when the head of the Department of Energy, the Interior Secretary, the EAD are science deniers. And does it begin with elementary school education and having this uh, 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 topic included in their curriculum? I, I really don't know. But I'm thinking more about my children and grandchildren. One of the things I've noticed is that sometimes people finally do get the message. It takes a while. And we're, we're living in a period of delusional fantasies about a lot of things that 
Nothing can happen to us because we're safe and secure in the United States. Nothing can happen to us because we're on high ground. Nothing can happen to us because we're healthy and wealthy. Uh, and these things are delusional because sooner or later, uh, things do happen. But I'm heartened by the fact that there can be behavioral change in people. I mean, when I went to college, for example, everyone smoked. Men smoked, women smoked, children smoked, even the dogs smoked. Doctors said smoking is good for your health. And if you didn't smoke, you were sort of classified as weird. What? You don't smoke? Well, they would say, what's your favorite brand? Is it Camels, Marlboros? Mine was uh, that Salem with that special flavor. Um, but as the information started coming out, People began to say, hey, maybe I will get cancer if I smoke cigarettes. Maybe I will develop a whole host of health diseases, anywhere from heart disease to um, <clears throat> tumors. And so people slowly got the message. Today, if you smoke in many circles, people look at you askance. I didn't know you smoked. Yeah, I smoked. And smoking today is mostly confined to certain demographic groups, mostly the young and the old, the very old. But we make great strides in curbing cigarette smoking and, cur and, and curbing the death of cigarette smoking related diseases. I'm not saying that you can apply that kind of analogy to climate change. But behaviors can change. And just because we're going through a, a delusional period doesn't necessarily mean to me that we'll always be in a delusional period. I hope that uh, we won't. Okay, I hope that we get out of our delusional period soon. But, um, you know, in the meantime, while everything wrong is going on on the federal level um, and in our climate, I think that a lot of people are really starting to wake up that hadn't before about this issue and getting a bit outraged and wanting to get involved and wanting to do something. And you actually see this huge resurgence around the country of people getting involved in local and state policies. Uh, state governors up pledging to uphold the Paris Climate Agreement, even while the federal, as while the Trump administration wants to pull us out. Local city mayors, all uh, Mayor Bowser in DC and, and a lot of other mayors uh, also pledging to uphold this and actually starting to put uh, actions behind their words and real policies. And uh, Maryland, I, I don't think that Maryland would have banned fracking this year, honestly, if Trump weren't elected. Because it was an issue that wasn't as dire until Trump got elected. People were like, oh, well, let's actually make something happen in our state, at the state level. And our state policymakers, policy uh, I think, felt the same way. And I, I, I think that's really heartening, and I, I'm glad to see and would love to see more of that. And I think that, you know, people wake up and spread the word. There are probably more ways and more organizations working at the local level and state level than ever before. So there's a lot of, a lot of silver lining around this uh, big cloud. Does your book offer any suggestions or discussion on dealing with refugees? Oh, it does. It <laughs> when my wife finished reading the book, she said, Jack, what a downer. <laughs> but within the framework of that so-called downer, there are suggestions as to what should and can take place. Number one is the United Nations has to play a much more uh, assertive role 
in dealing with the refugee question. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but the United Nations is one of the nicest political sinecures for displaced politicians from various countries to go to when their careers seem to be at end. Uh, they go there and earn six figures, and the, the mantra of the United Nations, let's not get too controversial, let's not get the Russians upset, let's not get the Chinese upset, let's have this little temper tantrum tank that periodically uh, the smaller nations can play in, but by and large, keep things relatively stable. So the United Nations has a great role to play in all this. Also, this is not just a national problem. Anyone who thinks that dealing with climate refugees can be dealt with on a national level um, is uh, uninformed. Because you have to deal with this problem on an international level. How are we going to police the seas with regard to uh, renegade uh, pirates who are trying to smuggle refugees into countries? How are we going to deal with problems of public health? How are we going to deal with the question of educating the children who are climate refugees? Their parents have brought them along, and we can't even develop a policy for people who are brought in from Latin America at a young age, the so-called dreamers. We can't seem to be able to get that act straightened out. So these are things that can happen. But also, we need a kind of regularization process, something that smacks of bureaucracy, yes, an identity card situation, because many of these people will come without passports. They've left their countries in haste, they left their countries because uh, they were going to be persecuted, they left their countries because a tsunami had destroyed their village, and they're not going to go back and pick through their papers after a major catastrophe. So we have to have a regularization process, identifying these people, giving them uh, essentially a legal identity that allows them to cross borders. Now, all these things can happen, but it requires the nation states to participate in international organizations and to develop an international community. And it also requires substantial amounts of money. Nothing happens in the world without money. Um, and so these things can happen. But if you look at the current political landscape, if you listen to the current level of political noise, you're going to get quite discouraged because the things that I just suggested are not happening. But I'm confident that, you know, short run pessimist, long run optimist. So I'm optimistic for the long term. Okay, questions? I've exhausted you. Go ahead in the back. We'll do the two more questions. I just want to say thank you for bringing more attention to what's going on because it is a serious problem. And I'm glad I'm learning more as a young adult because I went to the Carmen March this summer and that was very informative that there are things going on in the planet. There are species dying off. There are There is a lot of famine in Africa and, and uh, climate refugees as I'm learning tonight. So thank you both. So the description of your book says that it, it goes by a continent by continent uh, summary of it. I, my guess is that the most number of refugees in the decades, either now and or in the coming decades, is probably um, Africa and Asia from a com I guess from from droughts from drought in some areas and floods in other areas. Um, does, what does your book say about, uh, I guess, numbers and geographic areas? Yes, that is, that is accurate. Asia and Africa will do have the highest numbers of predicted uh, forced displacement from climate change. Uh, however, if you think about Middle East refugees as well, and the connections to the there, and how climate change might exacerbate those tensions and 
framework crisis, and that's another key pressure point to look at. But um, boy, in the, in the end, you know, it's it's about these these huge numbers are are really important. Um, but in the end, it's sometimes just one photo that can wake up an entire world about an issue. I think I, I remember. Uh, Syrian, a photo of a Syrian refugee boy that I washed up in the shore in Greece that just everyone was talking about it for weeks. It was just shocking. Like, no one, it, it was the wake up call that the world needed uh, to look at the Syrian refugee crisis and take it seriously. Um, so, yeah, we're going to see massive numbers around the world, but we're also going to see a lot of changes that we can't predict and what's going to happen to Latin America and what's how, who's going to be affected in our country and our owned state lands? And um, the the numbers can be very overwhelming. So I, again, I just try to bring it back to like what is the the message and the overall idea is think about your family member or a potential friend who has a family member in one of these areas that's going to get hurt, and that's all we really need. I just want to add one final comment, and that is, always look for the story behind the story. The story that you read on the news is often about political events and things of this sort. Um, but the story behind the story in the age of climate change is that the earth is drying up. Aquifers are being depleted, droughts are lengthening and widening, and we are soon going to be approaching um, water crises that are epically global in scale. That's the backstory that doesn't make the headlines, and it should. Anyway, I want to thank you all for coming. You... One more? One more. One more time. An encore. We haven't heard actually anything about the wars, and uh, don't you think there is a huge impact on everything because of wars? Oh, yes. Yeah. And is there a way actually that uh, somehow, I don't know how, but we as you know, people can stop the wars because so far we haven't, like during the Bush administration, more or less more majority of the country didn't want that war. But it happened. Is there a way that uh, we can find a solution and stop from happening something like this again? <laughs> There's a famous quotation. It's called, War is the health of the state. And um, stopping wars. It's a lot more difficult than starting them. And um, how countries can avoid getting entangled in conflicts um, is uh, something that's wor worth its weight in philosophers. And I'm not going to try to give you a, a one, two, three on how we prevent wars. Although I will say this is that wars ultimately, in the backstories, are about resources. And they're not necessarily about ideologies as much as they are about resources. And indeed, as we scramble around the planet looking for resources, we should expect a certain amount of conflict to prevail. And uh, I'm not reasonably optimistic. But uh, that's a terrible way to conclude a talk. <laughs> so just let me say, are, are we finishing them? Are there any questions? Last chance. Just let me say that. <clears throat> This book is for sale outside, and for the cost of a McDonald's meal, you can learn more about climate change, rising tides, and climate refugees than perhaps you ever wanted to know. Thank you very much. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thank you, Denise. Thank you, Jack. Um, that's all. Have a great rest of your evening. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center.
For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.